This podcast is a production of Phoenix Media. Explore more episodes of this show and other great shows on the Phoenix Media Podcast Network by visiting phoenixmedia.us. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the company or its advertisers and may contain language that's unsuitable for younger listeners. You're listening to Be Kind Rewind with Tim Nidell, taking you back to when movies were actually good. Are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? When music wasn't auto-tuned. When TV only had a few channels. And now, here's your host, Tim Nidell. Welcome, everybody, to a brand new episode of Be Kind Rewind with your host, Tim Nidell, which is me. Follow me online. My website is timnidell.com. You can also follow me on social media. It's Tim underscore Nidell. And, of course, we are the show that takes you back, back to the good old days of good movies, good music, good television. And today is no different because we're going back to the year 1961 back when Disney's 101 Dalmatians was released because we have the voice of Sergeant Tibbs himself, David Frankham. Yes, sir. Right sir. Right away, sir. Colonel. I say, Colonel. Colonel, sir. Colonel. Sergeant Tibbs reporting, sir. And, of course, David did so much more than just voicing Sergeant Tibbs. He was also in the original run of Star Trek, the television show. He did a couple episodes of the Beverly Hillbillies back in the 60s. Alfred Hitchcock Presents in the late 50s and early 60s. And one of my favorites, he was in Return of the Fly with Vincent Price from 1959. And if you haven't seen that movie, maybe you've only seen the original one. It it really is a great movie. And I mean, I'm a huge, huge, huge (laughs) Vincent Price fan. So it's always a pleasure to watch his movies, and David does an excellent job in that movie as well. So it's great to see those two together. And he has some great stories to tell about Vincent Price himself, how great of a guy he was, which is awesome to hear because you don't ever want to hear that your uh, one of your favorite actors is a douchebag, honestly. you know. So it's great to hear that Vincent was a great guy. And of course, going back to Disney's 101 Dalmatians, such a great movie and I guess it's kind of underrated because you really don't hear much about the original animated feature film that Disney produced in 1961 but I've always loved it it still holds up today it's got some amazing amazing characters in it including Sergeant Tibbs which I'm not lying when I say he's always been one of my favorite characters I remember I think it was McDonald's came out with a Happy Meal and there was a Sergeant Tibbs toy I don't think he was by himself, though. I, I believe he was, like, laying on top of, of the Colonel Dog, just like in the uh, animated film, too. And I love that toy. I mean, I know it's a cheap Happy Meal toy, but I played with it quite a bit when I was a kid. So it's great talking with David about voicing Sergeant Tibbs. We're losing so many of the classic Disney voices. So it's great that I was able to get David to talk about his time on Dalmatians, his time with Vincent Price. But before I play it, make sure to check out Phoenix Media Online. It's phoenixmedia.us. That's F-E-N-I-X media.us. There's a lot of other great shows that they produce weekly, including this one you're hearing right now, of course. And if you are interested in advertising with us, Click on the advertising tab on the website to learn how to do that.
And speaking of advertising, we'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Ooh, yeah, let me tell you something right here, uh huh. It's the Loot Crate subscription box, yeah, with an exclusive loot on surprises delivered to your door every month. Just pick up your favorite geeky genre, daddy. <laughs> From the original Loot Crate, the Loot Crate DX collectible boxes, dude. Cowabunga! To the Loot Gaming video game box. Woohoo! Browsers! With crates starting as large as 11 dollars per month, those are backs just about for all collectors. To get your geek on, head over to phoenixmedia.us forward slash loot crate and claim your exclusive offer. That's f-e-n-i-x media.us forward slash loot crate. Great Scott! Snap into a loot crate, it. so very much for your time this is truly an honor it really is well, thank, you. thank you for inviting me on saturday morning rewind that's <laughs> an honor too you know well thank you so our our show let me give you a little little bio on our show yes. I, I started it six years ago almost exactly when my my father passed away and uh. i wanted to relive my amazing memories of my childhood that he helped give me and so i started just watching all these old cartoons that i loved as a kid, and of course, one hundred one one Dalmatians was one of them, and mm-hmm. so you were a huge part of my childhood. Not just that, oh, but also your Vincent Price movies as well. Oh, thank you, thank you, Tim. What What about your childhood? Tell me about your childhood. Uh, well, I, I have to say that I'm at an age when I saw movies like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Dumbo and Fantasia. First time around in a theater, you know, I was 11 when I started going to movies. And I think one of the first I saw, I believe, little knowing I'd one day be working at Disney, was Snow White. I was an only child and had uh, parents who weren't too self-indulgent, but they uh, let me go to the pictures, as we'd say in England, once a week. And that's how I started my movie going. And... uh, Always wish I'd had brothers and sisters. Well, I didn't then. I feel I have now because I'm going to introduce uh, Jonathan David Dixon, the actor and composer, in a moment. Jonathan invited me to Facebook page, and suddenly I have all these friends. I didn't even know they were around when I was working 50 years ago in Hollywood, and now I correspond thanks to Jonathan's email with people in Leningrad, Tokyo, China, Scandinavia. Uh, it's it's a great thrill for me every day to have Jonathan say, look, David, you so-and-so and so-and-so has just talked to you on email. And then I, you know, send back. And we're even corresponding now by mail, too. And I write wow. to a nice lady in Tokyo. We're more or less going steady. <laughs> I think she's only 13, but anyway. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that's my life now. I, I'm I'm not sorry now that I was an only child because I got to do a lot of things that I might have had to share with siblings, you know, <laughs> like going to movies all the time. That's true. That's true. What yeah. were some of your mo- favorite movies growing up? Oh, growing up, uh, Laura was always a favorite. Um, I was a great Gene Tierney fan. 
in England, a, a devoted Gene Simmons fan, maybe not so well known in this country now, I'm not sure. Although, of course, she did biggies like The Robe and big pictures like that. Ah, yes. um, Vincent, of course, again, little knowing that I would one day be honored to do three movies with him. Um, a great Bing Crosby fan. <laughs> Uh, some people I understand today wouldn't know who he was, but he was a big, huge singer in the yeah, 30s and 40s. And also uh, Rosemary Clooney, who was the, the, what, the guardian angel who, in a sense, brought me to this country. I'd interviewed her. I had a BBC uh, talk show called The Bright Lights for about four years in England. Rosemary was a guest at the time of White Christmas. We chatted promoting the movie. And at the end of it, I said to her, what do you think my chances would be of working in radio in Los Angeles? I always wanted to be an actor. My plan, I hoped, would be go to Los Angeles, work in radio, get to know a few people maybe uh, in the movies and get going that way. So Rosemary said the magic words at the end of our chat. She said, well, if you decide to go, call me when you get there and we'll get you started. Wow. So, boy, am, am I grateful to her. And that's how it started. That's how your acting career started then. It all started with her saying, sure, you know, come on over and I'll get you going. Yeah. Wow. Tell me <laughs> about those first days of you being an actor. What was that like for you? The first days? Yeah, the first, you know, opening of your career. What was that like? Terrifying. <laughs> because I thought, as I've just said, I might get a line here and there to get started. Because of a fluke, Roddy McDowell uh, was set to star in... Uh, an episode of a show called Matinee Theatre, which was live television, Monday through Friday, ran several years in L.A. in 1956. Roddy was suddenly called to Broadway to rehearse a play. I had never acted, but thanks to Angela Lansbury's husband, whom I had just got to know quite briefly, not very you know, closely at all, called my agent and said, get David out to NBC right away. They're in, a, they're in a fix. They've got to have someone. So in the old tradition of show business, I was suddenly given the lead in the show without wow. having ever acted. And all that week I thought, oh, they're going to find out about me and put me back on the ship and send me back to England <laughs> and the Queen Mary and the BBC and all of that. Um, but I don't know, touch wood, it went well, and NBC gave me five more to do. Meantime, of course, I immediately started studying and joined an acting group and so on to find out why I was doing what I was doing. So the first, the first thing was terrifying. I really thought, I'm either going to pull this off or I'm going to drop dead from fright. <laughs> so obviously I'm still here and I didn't there drop you dead. Go. Yep, you're still here, <laughs> still alive and kicking. <laughs> Let's talk about 101 Dalmatians. Was was that your first and only like voiceover besides recently when you're doing those narration stop action pictures we'll talk about later? Was uh, that your only voiceover you did back in the days? It was it was in, in movies. I was at that year, nineteen fifty-nine. This is really rewinding back, Tim. Uh I was doing a, a, a show all that year called One Man's Family on radio. It's been running for decades, I think. And so I had just joined the show that year. So I was doing that every Saturday. And I was doing uh, some voice work at MGM. I was dubbing um, Ben-Hur. William uh -huh. Wyler needed voices uh, 
to fill in for not very good Italian actors, you know, he needed uh -huh. better voices. And so I was doing that at the same time. So I, I was comfortable working in a studio with a music stand for my script and a microphone. But for movies, no, that was my, I mean, a real, a real one, not counting just voices on yeah. Ben-Hur. Yeah. Uh, Dalmatians was my breakthrough, yes. Tell me about that. Tell me about getting hired. What was that process like? For the, uh, just an, another another job for a jobbing actor. My agent said, go out to Disney on the 31st of March, meet the casting director, Jack Bauer. He'll tell you all about it. And so Jack introduced himself and said, now we're the studio's producing Nathaniel Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables, and we're thinking of casting... No, 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 101 Dalmatians. Oh, yes, you see what I have? I do have to introduce I'm his external memory. Now, you tell me Tim went to break in and introduce Jonathan. Okay. Because he, okay. He does, he does jog my memory. Anyway, so yeah, we're, we're, we're producing 101 Dalmatians, and uh, we're thinking of you possibly as the voice of the cat. So I, I did an audio audition, and uh, Disney, I think Walt Disney would listen to all of the various tapes later. He never, ever saw anybody. Uh, auditioning a voice. He went entirely by the sound. So I did it and shook hands and left. And about a week later, I was told I had the part. And so on the 1st of June in 59, I was told to report to Studio 1A at uh, Disney Studio, which of course was hallowed ground, Tim, because that's oh, yeah. where everybody who recorded voices for Disney recorded on that soundstage. Wow. And uh, so there I stood in the footsteps, your overboard, Disney himself being Mickey Mouse's voice, of course. And so showed up and uh, a gentleman named Wooly Reitherman came in and mm -hmm. introduced himself. I wasn't aware at that time that he was one of the nine original old men. Yep. Later, of course, I did. And Willie introduced me to a, a very nice actor named J. Pat O'Malley. Uh, yes. And J. Pat O'Malley was going to be the sheepdog, I was going to be the cat, and a, a fine voice artist named Thurl Ravenscroft was uh -huh. the horse. We didn't meet, unfortunately. He was a brilliant, brilliant voice on many commercial recordings, Thurl was. Woolley then led us over to one whole wall of this recording stage, peppered with sketches. And he said, these are the storyboards. And he led J. Pat and I through the whole sequence that we were about to record. I wish I'd grab one of those off the wall. That would cost, you know, <laughs> a fortune on eBay now. <laughs> anyway, he explained the whole thing that we were to do. Led us over to the traditional two, two music stands where we had our pages and the microphone overhead. Uh, there was one addition that really... I've never really quite understood. There was somebody sitting beside me with a sketch pad, sketching the whole time we were recording, and one with Pat, too. Turns out later that they were incorporating some part of our features into the animated character, yep. especially with Pat. Pat had a very jovial kind of sheepdog sort of face. So I wasn't surprised to see uh, how he came out, you know. So it was just standard. We, we did as much as we were asked to do that day. I think there were three, maybe four recording sessions during that year, 59, another one or two in 1960. And all the time I was there, I think any actor would think this going to the studio 
when or even will I ever meet Walt Disney? Yeah, yeah. And that's when Willie explained to me, no, you won't, because he only goes by the sound of the voice. Uh, I don't know if there's time to tell you that I did eventually meet him because these recording sessions were spaced far apart while the animators caught up with our soundtracks, you know. Okay. During that time, Disney cast me in a a feature film called Ten Who Dared, about oh, yeah. the first 10 men who charted the Colorado River. And so we went off to do that in Utah. And uh, when we came back to do interiors, that's when Walt Disney came on the set every day. Wow. It, you, you can only imagine, Tim, you know, for me going all the way back to Snow White to meet the man who was responsible for all these marvelous films. All I could say was, it's an honor to meet you, Mr. Disney. And he said, nah, I think he actually said N-A-H, nah, around here, everybody calls me Walt. Yeah. I couldn't, he came on the set every day. Wow. I couldn't bring myself to call him Walt. This genius, and I believe he really was. Oh, yeah. yeah seriously. And I would have gone crazy myself meeting the man. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Oh, can I leap in with one thing oh, here? Yes, of course. I just wanted to tell you, Tim, David didn't even know this, but a fan wrote and said, oh, I saw you also did the voice of that little terrier dog in 101 Dalmatians. And David said, I did. <laughs> and we had he had no memory of no, that. No, no, but I really? uh, checked with Les Perkins, who is a Disney voice authority, and he pulled out his notebooks. And I actually found this on eBay recently for David. Let's see if I can put it up for you. Wow. <laughs> that little voice was David as well. Wow. But he has no memory of it. <laughs> I don't know. I should, of course, looking back now, I should have been paid twice. Though. I didn't <laughs> Seriously. Know wow. I mean, I don't. I didn't even know that. That wasn't anywhere online. So amazing. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> about Sergeant Tibbs. What was he like to voice? What what did you do to give him the, the voice that we hear? Did you change your voice at all to, to sound uh, like Sergeant Tibbs? I, well, I changed the kind of accent, yeah. I, I fell back on my lifelong love of cats, which I think really helped a lot. I've always had cats, and I just adore cats. Um, my voice is the voice that you hear now, but my father was almost a cockney, and he talked sort of like that, you know? Yeah. And so I fell back on my father's voice. Nobody asked me to, but since the colonel was my, in a sense, commanding officer, I thought to myself, yes, sir, right, sir, okay, uh -huh. so yes. So I, this voice came out, and I thought, if they don't like it, they'll tell me to change it, and nobody did. So um, that's how the voice came about, and just generally a love of cats and feeling how, how they would react. To, to situations, you know. And of course, the storyboards were there to guide me all the way through. Yeah. And I love how you had J. Pat O'Malley there with you recording your sessions because that's kind of a rare thing, especially in Disney movies, that you can record with somebody. I didn't know that. I, I, I just took it for granted. You yeah. Know that. I don't know why we didn't meet Thurl Ravenscroft because in many of the sequences, the three of us are together, the cat, yeah. the sheepdog, and the horse. Um, but we didn't. But um, Pat and I just got along famously anyway. And uh, it was very well written, I have to say. I'm ashamed to say that I don't know who did the the script, the screenplay for it. But uh, Pat was absolutely perfect for it. So, yeah, we got along great. 
do you have any other stories about Disney Studios, about working on the the movie itself, the the premiere maybe, or anything to talk about? Uh, only getting there, because I, by then I'd been an actor for about three years, I think, in 1959. <clears throat> I worked at well, MGM, Fox, I think, uh, uh, Universal, and most of them were just concrete sound stages, you know, little, as yep. they were factories indeed. Mm. Not the Disney studio, it was like a college campus. Yep. There were trees, parks, lawns, everything about it looked laid back, and everybody on it was. I never felt any pressure at all there. Every, I think they took their cue, you know, from the genius who owned the studio from Walt. Uh, just everybody was laid back. No, I did actually, I, I don't think I saw the premiere, but 20 years later here in Santa Fe, I thought, well, I'd seen it. I, I, I went to the cast uh, screening at the studio. Okay. Uh, but you're always a bit uptight then thinking, gosh, am I all right? You know, you, you, can't, you, you can't relax really. So 20 years later, it was in reissue here in Santa Fe and I had moved here two years before then, I think. So I decided to go, it, was, it ran a week here, and I decided to go to a Saturday, Saturday matinee. And uh, I thought when I walked in, this is a big mistake, it was full of kids, you know, noisy, and I thought, God, <laughs> they come down. Well, of course, what I didn't realize, it's a child's picture. The moment it began, there was dead silence, and all that, that whole theater full of kids was just at the screen. They, they applauded good old Tibbs when he was rescuing the, you know, it was such a moving and unique experience for me, I will never forget it. Wow. So I missed the premiere, but I think I made up for it that Saturday yeah. matinee yeah. in Santa Fe. Sounds amazing. Now, yeah. now, the movie came out in 1961, and fortunately we lost Walt Disney in 66. Was that a shock to you? Oh, yes, of course, of course. I mean, he didn't, I don't think he was that old. I can't remember now, no. but he certainly seemed perfectly fit and terrific. I'd auditioned for other things afterwards, and I didn't get, and I'm not sure if Walt was still alive then. Um, I can't remember what the things were. And, of course, because I'd done Dalmatians, I thought I'd be a shoe-in for another <laughs> movie, you know, another animated feature. Uh, but he stuck to his guns and listened to the voice and whatever I auditioned for. My voice was not correct for, wow. but I thought, you know, he'll he'll be around a long time. There'll be other, there'll be other opportunities. So of course, yes, a huge shock. I think, you know, of all the studio heads like Louis B. Mayer and whoever was running Universal or Columbia, he was the creative head of the studio. He wasn't just running the studio. He put pen to pencil, pen to paper you know and drew and thought everything came from his imagination so i think in his case more than the other moguls and i guess he was a mogul his was a huge creative loss when he died yep. yes yeah another one of my favorites that ever since i was a kid i have been in love with vincent price oh. <laughs> so tell me tell me about vincent about working with oh. him and as a friend what was he like do you have time i hope yeah, so i do i do uh, <laughs> Well, you know, three movies. First of all, uh, the huge thrill of being told that I was going to be in the sequel to uh, The Fly, Return of the Fly. Absolutely in awe of him initially because he was 6'4", and I think I was just 5'11", or something. So I literally looked up to him. I had no idea what kind of man he would be, absolutely none. Um, so we did our first scene. 
because it was cinemascope that was new to me a stretched out screen you had to keep moving to fill up the space you know so we didn't really get to know each other much but hello mr price wonderful to be working with you so i went to my little canvas dressing room after that first shot and i was sitting there vincent stuck his head in the door and he said what are you doing and i said oh mr price i'm just i'm just going over the next scene you know just preparing and he said well i like a social set kid he said there's a chair out there with your name on it get your ass out there and that <laughs> broke the ice for me and that was the beginning of i'm proud to say a lifelong friendship with him and so when we came to do the second one the following year that was 59 i did uh, master of the world in 60 tales of terror in 61 mm. Uh, we knew each other well, and that was a very happy set, the whole thing. We had a three-week schedule instead of the only 13-day schedule for for wow. um, Town of the Fly. And one day, oh, we were doing it at the Old Republic Studios where they had no air conditioning, and it was in August. Master uh, of the World. I Master of the World. Answer. Yes, Master of the World, I should have said. And I was sitting talking to Mary Webster because there was no air conditioning. Whenever we stopped filming, we went outside and sat under a tree. <laughs> Vincent heard me telling her that I had just moved into a, a rented house that weekend. This was a Friday. On the Saturday, I was just going to go around trying to find secondhand furniture to fill up my house. Saturday morning, the phone rang. Hi, it's Vincent. Oh, good morning. Uh, I understand you need some furniture. I, well, well, yes, he said. Okay, my wife and I have a lot of furniture we we, we don't need, so uh, get your ass over here and you can spend the day taking whatever furniture you like. Oh, but Vincent, I don't drive. There was a port. What? You mean I've got to haul you back and forth all day as well as giving you both? He hated being thanked. He filled up my house that day with furniture, with cutlery, with towels, with everything you wow. can think of. I knew that if I thanked him in front of the rest of the cast, he'd kill me. <laughs> so I did. So as he was leaving that, that Saturday, I said, I, I'll, I'll never be able to thank you enough. Oh, shut no, that's okay. That's okay. I was holding my Siamese cat at that moment. Vincent, as I said, is very tall. He leant down this towering figure over my cat to pet her. She scratched him, blood everywhere. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. You'll take all the furniture back. So I was sticking Band-Aids on it. I'm terribly sorry. Anyway, that that was part of his, his generosity. He was the most generous man. His, his only challenge on, on Master of the World was, was um, don't tell me, Jonathan, I think, Charles Bronson. Charles was a very shy private man. They had done, as you know, House of Wax together. Yeah. But Charles didn't, Charles was so shy that he rarely re related. I, I kind of understood that he was shy and didn't want to join in Vincent's group of chairs, you know. And Vincent said to me one day, the guy baffles me. I can't get through to him. And I tried to explain, you know, that Charles was really a very nice fellow. I liked him very much. But I think he always remained a challenge to Vincent. So the following year, then, we did Tales of Terror, which was another additional thrill, not only working again with Vincent, but also with Basil Rathbone. There was another awesome figure for me, and uh, Deborah Padgett, who was a delightful young lady. 
And it was that was a fast shoot with Roger Corman, of course, who did so many of those marvelous films, yeah. as you know. And so it went smoothly, quickly, because uh, Roger was so well organized, of course. And uh, so I didn't see a lot of Vincent other than just being on the set with him. He, what he loved to do, once he knew on the second film we did that anything would break me up, he he's lying on the bed dying and I'm the doctor leaning over and saying, oh, you're going to be all right. He always started telling me a dirty joke. He would save the punchline until Roger Corman said action. And then he would think, and I <laughs> Roger Corman, cut, what's the matter, David? Can you, can you focus, please? <laughs> That's a that. So didn't see a whole lot of him socially for that hectic week, but boy, he sure gave me a hard time in the, in the <laughs> best possible sense of the word, tales of terror. <laughs> so yeah, I saw him, oh, let's see, years, years and years later. Sadly, um, Tim, oh, Jonathan, the name of the uh, faith? Tim Burton. Tim Burton uh, did a, a great salute to Vincent at, at the International Hotel in Los Angeles. Uh, it was a salute to Vincent, and I was invited along with Roger Corman um, to just pay tribute to him. And he was very frail by then. This was 1990. Wow. Two young fellows were helping him on stage, and I could see, you know, this giant of a man was was failing. But we got through it. We did we did the, the show together with <clears throat> Tim Burton. And then as he was leaving, the last words is he looked over his shoulder as these two young fellows were helping him back to his car, and he said, "Old age sucks, kid." And that's how I will always remember him. <laughs> I don't think he's right because I. In that capacity now, and it just doesn't feel to me as though it sucks. But he was a, a dear, dear man, a huge influence on me, Tim. Yeah. I love those stories because I, as a kid, you don't hear those stories, and you just see what you see on the screen. And I just imagined him as being an intimidating person, you know. Yeah, so, I thought he would be too, yeah. yeah. No, he, a great love of life and the most generous man I think I've ever known. Yeah. yeah. Not the least bit like some of those intimidating characters he played. Yeah. <laughs> when we spoke about setting this interview up, you were talking about flying in and voicing some narration for the stop action mov movie that you're, that was being created. Tell me about that project. Oh, you betcha. Uh, two years, well, I think, oh, excuse me, Tim, I think I just bumped something. Uh, I have at this point to introduce yes, Jonathan, Jonathan, because he's please. much involved in this project. Um, my only concession to being 91, I'm going to be 92 next month, is failing eyesight. And Jonathan is a colleague and my best friend. So a few years ago, he said, come on, you better move into my condo so I can keep an eye on you. So uh, two years ago, he woke me up and said, look, come into the office. Look on, look on the computer. Somebody had done a complete two and a half minute overview of my entire career with little sound clips on my birthday, on my birthday wow. 16th of February. And this young man turned out to be Ben Wiki, and he was a Facebook friend, but I never really had much contact with him. Of course, I thanked him. So to make a long story short, uh, sometime later, he emailed us again that he was preparing the House of the Seven Gables, and he would like me to do the narration. Would I be interested? Of course. 
So Jonathan drove us both back to Los Angeles and we met Ben, uh, who was 21 then and just a bundle of energy, very, very talented to him. I looked him up on uh, um, YouTube and saw some of his short subject uh, animated features. He's quite brilliant. So uh, it went very smoothly. I went in and I did my, my narration and, and then we came back here. And then in the meantime, he's told Jonathan that Jonathan is to do uh, a younger version of my character, a younger voice and all of that. He's also asked Jonathan to compose the score for this movie, which Jonathan is now in the middle of doing. And uh, so that's, for me, fascinating to see how an animated feature is put together. Because I can stick my head in Jonathan's office here, see him at his keyboard, which is attached to the computer, and... Uh, ben will, will send some uh, uh, pages across of, of, of the, what do you call it, the pages? Oh, uh, it's an animatic storyboard, so it's the rough drawings, oh. but with the pacing of the scene and the final oh, dialogue okay. on it. Okay, very and cool. Jonathan can actually sit here at the keyboard, come up with a tune to match what he's looking at on his computer. Ben is sitting in Los Angeles hearing it live, and they communicate with each other every day like that, you know. Now, this is, we think, will go on throughout the summer. Then it will be done. And Ben has this wonderful idea of actually premiering this animated feature at the actual House of the Seven Gables in Massachusetts. Wow. And that will involve a big adventure for me getting on an Amtrak train. (laughs) I don't know, three or four days, I guess, through Chicago all the way to the East Uh Coast. And uh, that'll be a big thrill for me. Uh, I hope one day that you get to talk to Ben because he's really, I'm, I know I, I can't be completely objective, but I, be, I believe, and I think Jonathan does too, that he's quite gifted, really genuinely gifted. He can tell you all about the House of the Seven Gables when it's done. I saw the one that he released on YouTube not too long ago. What was that oh, one did? called? Yeah, what was that one called again? I forget. Oh, uh, let's see, yeah, several, but I think the last one he did was based on a Ray Bradbury story yes. called The Homecoming. Yes, The Homecoming. Yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, he worked with uh, Ray Bradbury's daughter on that. Wow. And uh, to me, it had, it's a, most accurately capturing the spirit of Ray Bradbury of any yeah. adaptation I've seen. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, for him, relatively, quote, crude because that's where he was. And with this next one, he's taken like huge steps forward. He's a CalArts student. Okay. So with everything he does, he takes a big leap. Did you like it? I did. It was so cool. First of all, I love stop motion animation. Yeah, well, but, you do. Yeah. And it, it just takes me back to the old originals. You know, it does, it's kind of crude looking, but I love that. How it's just not perfect, but it's got the old yeah. school look to it. Oh, like, yeah. Like okay. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, right? yeah. Now, he, I think this year he will graduate from CalArts, and I wasn't aware of the fact that Walt Disney had helped found yep, CalArts. I'm sure you knew that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so when he does, uh, he will be, as we say in the business, at liberty. So I'm hoping someone's going to snap him up. <laughs> yes, oh, that would be amazing. So good. I don't know what the situation is with animated features today, you know, what if you would have a uh, an uncertain future, as we all do, I guess, in show business anyway. But if there's any justice, he will he will settle himself somewhere and be a, of huge benefit to whatever company he attaches himself to. Yeah. Now, I know you're doing the narration for that film. Yeah. Are you also going to be a character in it? Or are we going to see a, a version on screen, like a character yes, on screen? Uh, uh, he's, he's based... 
my character uh, is a puppet, of course. It is a stop-motion puppet. Uh, and I think it's originally about two inches high. I've seen myself on the screen as this character. And it's awesome to me to hear my voice coming out of this puppet. Uh-huh. You know? So I, I, And I, it, it looks like David. So David <laughs> just stared at it saying, that looks like my dad. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He said that he based the look of it on my character in Tales of Terror. I don't know how that works out because obviously I was very young in 1960. Yeah. <laughs> no, the younger version of the character will be you. Oh, in Tales oh of the Terror. younger. I see. Okay, <laughs> all right. But yeah, no, I've seen it and I'm very impressed, I have to tell you. I can't wait. When it comes out, we should all get back together and, and do another interview with, with oh, him def- in there oh, with yes, us. That'd please be cool. Tim, I'd love to, yeah. yeah. And maybe, you know, we can do it if we're, we'll try to get to Los Angeles. With Ben, and you could talk with him too, because you'll love him. He's just yeah. a bundle of energy and talent. It. Yeah, I love, I love creation. I love unique creation like that. So yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Good. Well, we'll make that a certainty that I'll see to it. Sounds it good. Sounds good. Ben, thrilled to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let him know. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Okay. What else is coming up for you? Anything else that you wanted to chat about? Any other projects or anything you're doing? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, frankly, I was amazed to be hauled out of retirement to do this, uh-huh, which was uh-huh. you know, exciting for me. Uh, and I'm open and willing and able for anything that comes along. I do do quite a bit of Skyping like this, which I love doing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of, don't laugh now, of a Dr. Gangrene. No, you haven't. <laughs> no. Jonathan, you better explain. <laughs> <laughs> that he's a horror movie host, uh, oh, okay. an award-winning one in Nashville. His name's Larry Underwood. Uh-huh. And he's interviewed David a few times by Skype. Yeah. So we're going to do it, I think, in we're, a couple of days. Yeah, nice. Uh, talking about the outer limits. Yeah, I, I love, well, rewinding, frankly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So uh, he wants to talk about the outer limits, and I did a couple of those. And uh, it's just, it's fun and really a privilege to look back on people that I've worked with and, and was proud to be alongside for a week or two oh. on a TV show, you know, plug your book. Oh, and a book, yeah. Please, about, yes. Let's see, six years ago, Jonathan sat me down and said, um, what about your an autobiography? You, you had an interesting life in England and in here. So to make a long story short, uh, we chatted, he and I, for about 20 hours, not all at once, of course, recorded it on 20 CDs and sent it to a writer we know named Jim Hollyfield in Memphis. And Jim had actually put this idea to uh, a publishing company, and they said, well, do us a couple of chapters on Frankham and let's see. So Jim did, and they said, yeah, we like it. Okay, have him do a book. So this book came out in uh, 2012, and it's called Which One Was David? And uh, now it's a reference book to me because, as you've noticed, a couple of times (laughs) during this chat, my mind goes, you know. And so now I look at the book because my mind was sharper six years ago to confirm that I'm really telling the facts as they were, you know. So it's called Which One Was David? Because my parents knew nothing about theater or acting or anything. My father thought actors were sissies and all of that. This is back in 1943 or four. And they went to see me in a school production of The Merry Wives of Windsor. I played Falstaff. Well, you can't miss Falstaff cushions that I'm waddling about, you know. So on the way home, my mother said to my father, I enjoyed that, too. And there was a pause. And my dad said, yes, it was okay. 
which one was David? <laughs> he had no idea I was false. So I thought, okay, dear old dad, you're gone now, but I'll put your name as the title of the book. Oh. So that's why it's called Which One Was David. I love it. I love it. Is that on Amazon and other yes, places? That's right. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I will put a, I'll find a link of it and I'll put it on our website so people can go to it. Uh, is it on Kindle, Jonathan? Uh, you can get an ebook oh. version like that. Yes. Perfect. Oh. Very cool. I, I have no idea what Kindle is, but I've heard that that's <laughs> one way of reading a book. <laughs> wow. Well, so those are my, those are my days. I, I have, there's a local station here with another good title like yours, Saturday Morning Rewind. This one is called Cinema Scope. I've heard and of them, yep. We have us in a couple of times a year at a very nice fella in uh, Pasadena called Ed Robertson. His show is called TV Confidential. And anytime we're there, he has us both in, Jonathan, to talk about his acting activities and me. And um, actually, we got a, a, a Christmas card from Ed saying, keep me up to date on the House of the Seven Gables. And when it premieres, let's promote it. So... I always have enough things going, you know, to keep me interested. Yeah. As I've said, I, I love communicating with people on Facebook page. I think that's a wonderful invention. It is. Yeah. Especially, yeah. especially now that family is all around the, the country and they can all see my kids and, and keep up with me. It's, it's amazing. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. a special benefit from it for David has been getting to know through Facebook get in contact with the children and grandchildren of people he had worked oh. with. Like we've gotten to know Vincent Price's grandson yes. wow. very well. And Cortland Hull, who's the Henry great, Henry great nephew of Henry Hull from Master of the World yeah. and Werewolf wow. of London. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, there, there are connections all the time, you know. And watching movies, as I do a lot every day, is like looking through a photo album of old friends that I've worked with. Yeah. I'm, I'm always... Oh, we're so thrilled to think, gosh, did I really work with Thomas Mitchell, who won an Academy Award for Stagecoach? Did I really work with him? <laughs> so I'm a kind of a gosh old man. Everything I look at is, gosh, you know, life yep. is still a wonder in many ways, Tim. It is. It is. And David, yeah. no, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you oh, for your I've, amazing I've... stories. Thank you for helping make my childhood what it was. So oh, thank... gosh, y'all, I'm so Touched to hear you say that. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening to that Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks. <laughs> <laughs>